1: It's one of the most recognizable sounds to human ears. Covering three-quarters of the Earth's surface, oceans are one of the world's great natural kingdoms. They have provided sustenance for humanity for millions of years. Fish consumption has even played a role in human evolution. Researchers have shown that it significantly increased early human cognition. It really is brain food. The oceans have also provided great wealth for millennia. Sailing revolutionized the world economy. It allowed ancient Egyptians and Greeks to travel and trade. Fishing and aquaculture assure the livelihood of one in 10 people today. But the world's oceans are in trouble.
2: The ocean is under assault from so many different quarters. It's hard to know where to begin.
3: When we look at the IPCC report, time is running out, there's no two ways about that. We have got to stem the CO2 production and stem the temperature rise that is coming. The threats that coastal
4: and island communities face from climate change include sea level rise, warming oceans, which can lead to the degradation of coral reefs, and then the expected increase occurrence of extreme natural events, such as hurricanes and coastal storms.
1: I'm Kenneth Kukieh, and in this special episode of Babbage, we'll look at some of the threats facing the world's oceans. And we'll talk to some of the scientists who dedicated their lives trying to save these watery treasures. I've always loved water.
2: Being a swimmer and spending time in and around the water when I was growing up in Colorado, I had a fantastic opportunity in college to spend a summer at Woods Hole, Massachusetts and took a class in invertebrate zoology. Oh my gosh, I just fell in love with the amazing diversity of life that's in the ocean. I couldn't get enough, and I've never looked back. My name is Jane Lubchenko. I'm Distinguished University Professor at Oregon State University. I had the pleasure of serving as the administrator of NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, in the first term of the Obama administration. I was named the first U.S. science envoy for the ocean.
1: Jane believes that to begin solving the many challenges confronting oceans, scientists need to reclaim the story that's told about them.
2: I think one of the real challenges is our perception of the ocean. You know, for most of human history, we thought the ocean was so immense, so bountiful, so resilient that it was just too big to fail. We've Seen the folly of that mindset in just the last few decades. The coral reefs bleaching, so much disgusting looking plastic in the water, impacts of climate change. Every time we turn around, there's another ocean problem that is surfacing. That's led to a new narrative taking hold, which is oh my gosh, these problems are so serious, so difficult, the vested interests are so powerful, there's so much inertia in the system that maybe the ocean is too big to fix. I don't believe that either of those is true. And I think we're seeing the emergence of a new narrative around the ocean, which is the recognition that the ocean connects us, it feeds us, it sustains us. It is so central to not only our past, but our future. It holds the key to helping fix climate change, to food security. It is really right at the center of efforts to address inequity, poverty, hunger, so many different issues. And there's a new narrative that is emerging that the ocean is actually so big, it is too big to ignore.
3: I grew up in Essex in a coastal village, so I've always had a connection with the ocean. I've also kept fish since I was about 12 years old. My name is Dr. Jamie Craggs. I'm an aquarium curator here at the Horniman Museum and Gardens in southeast London. Within aquariums, breeding is the sort of upper echelon. If you can breed your animal, it shows the animal is not only happy and thriving, but it is reproductively fit.
1: One probably wouldn't naturally think of London as a pioneering hotbed of ocean research. It's not next to an ocean for a start. But amid the leafy Horniman Gardens in the south of the capital, Jamie leads an innovative research project looking into arguably the ocean's most vital
3: animal. Corals, for me, I find absolutely fascinating because when you look at them at a fundamental level, they're very basic organisms, yet there's huge complexity within that basic structure. There's incredible associations with different organisms that allow the coral to thrive coral is an animal but they have a relationship with an algae that lives inside them called zooxanthellae and this is what's called a symbiotic relationship the algae gives the coral about 80 percent of its food but the coral also can capture prey so it gets about 20 percent of its food from prey capture coral is actually a colonial organism made up of individual units called polyps and many many polyps make up the colony of the coral they grow the huge structures like the great barrier reef which is the biggest living structure on Earth, coral reefs cover about 0.1% of our ocean floor, but within that 0.1%, over a quarter of all species in the ocean reside on coral reefs. That's all the great stuff about reefs. The downside is reefs are being adversely affected as a result of human-driven climate change. It's estimated that 50% of the world's reefs are potentially damaged beyond recovery.
1: Jamie's small team is developing techniques to stimulate coral sexual reproduction. Project Coral aims to train a new generation of conservationists and protect the world's coral reefs. But
3: coral reproduction is hard. What we know is reefs or corals themselves that build the reefs are very sensitive to slight changes in the maximum temperature. That causes a stress which leads to a symptom called coral bleaching. It's where this symbiotic algae that lives inside the coral actually gets kicked out of the coral and they lose that food source. If these warming periods are protracted and the conditions aren't right for the algae to come back into the corals, in essence the coral starves and dies. When that happens, all this niche environment that allows this explosion of different life to occur on reefs, they lose their home. And so you lose this associated biodiversity when the corals die. The vast majority of corals reproduce over just a couple of nights a year. Project Coral was born out of an idea of, if we understand the environmental conditions that trigger the corals to spawn, could we replicate those within an aquarium environment? And then if we can do that, what if we take all of the environmental data that's triggered those spawning events, could we move the spawning date? Up the stairwell here, we have a three-rack system which has three raceway aquariums, and then within those three raceways are 24 individual tanks. And so we're running an experiment at the moment where we have settled about 5,000 juvenile corals, and now we're introducing different feeding types and assessing the influence that those feeding types has on the survival of those juvenile corals. We have corals from specific locations where we've got environmental data from those locations. Things like NASA satellite data, temperature probes have been put on the reef. We work in both Australia and Singapore, but the idea is that these principles can be applied really anywhere in the world that you can get access to the corals, and the environmental data. And the data that we put in then controls LED lighting, so we can simulate the arc of the sun in the sky. The lunar cycle can all be replicated with LED lights. And then we use, ultimately, ping-pong balls to act as diffusers so the correct amount of light can simulate the waxing and the waning of the moon. There's no two ways of glossing over the fact that huge areas of reefs are being lost. Reef restoration will not rebuild reefs to the way that they were even 50 years ago. The whole idea of reef restoration is to provide enough time that the broader issue of climate change can be fixed. That's the only way reefs will survive in the future. Work that's happening at the Smithsonian in Hawaii, look at cryopreservation so we can cryopreserve material and bank that in stasis, so that it offers a genetic library that we can refer back to at a later point. There's discussions around how do we selectively breed hardier corals, corals that can withstand future impacts of climate change. If we develop these techniques and have that knowledge and that understanding, then potentially there is hope for the future of the reefs.
1: Collaboration is at the heart of Project Coral. Jamie's team shares the data that their experiments create with researchers around the world, and everything they publish goes into open-source journals. But the oceans present a unique challenge to conservationists when they try to work in international waters.
4: Right now at the United Nations, there are discussions to essentially protect the high seas, that's areas beyond national jurisdiction. One key sticking point there is, you
1: know, who's going to pay for that conservation and management if we protect this area? Stephen Lutz heads up the UN Blue Carbon Programme, The initiative aims to mitigate the damage done by climate change through the conservation and restoration of coastal and marine ecosystems.
4: Right now, what you have for much of marine life is something called the tragedy of the commons. Marine life is seen as a free resource, and that free-for-all resource has led to the overfishing and overexploitation of much life in the high seas. So putting a value on keeping something in the high seas as opposed to taking it out of the high seas is, I would think, quite groundbreaking. In 2015, the Global Ocean Commission released a report that valued the biological carbon sequestration activity of life in the high seas to be at about 0.448 billion tons of carbon annually, which is worth around 74 to $220 billion annually. One thing we know is that the ocean is a huge carbon reservoir. Since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, the oceans have absorbed and stored an estimated 155 billion tons of carbon, about 30% of the total human emissions, and they continue to store about 30% of our total emissions annually. This includes the conservation and restoration of mangrove forests, which can store up to 10 times as much carbon as terrestrial forests.
1: Protecting blue forests is not just about reducing emissions. If they are not protected, then the degraded coastal ecosystem can turn from carbon sinks to carbon sources. If you mow down an area of mangroves
4: to build some aquaculture, well, there's a high percentage that that carbon that's been stored up over hundreds of years, that carbon can get released into the atmosphere. So the idea with the coastal carbon ecosystems is to protect what you have and conserve it and then to restore if possible.
1: But how far can oceanic blue carbon really go in mitigating the risks of climate change?
4: I was working on coastal vegetated carbon ecosystems for the past 10 years. And, and when we started out, you know, we were told that, you know, don't bother with the coasts, the forests will do it all and it's not worthwhile, etc. But now we have over 30 countries that have pledged to adopt coastal and marine ecosystems in their climate change adaptation and mitigation strategies. I would say given a note from what we've done with coastal ecosystems, I, I think the sky's the limit for ocean ecosystems and for marine life.
1: Coming up. Plastic has wreaked havoc on the world ocean, but could the ocean itself be used to grow bioplastics?
5: Colleagues I have in Sweden, they are looking at using them as a replacement for one-use plastic cups.
1: And we investigate an innovative new trend in sushi.
0: Diners in Tokyo will be able to sit down at a sushi restaurant and open this app and trace where their mackerels come from and know exactly when it was fished.
1: Holy mackerel! We're on a roll.
2: Selling a little or a lot? Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.
1: Fish and other seafood are essential to the livelihood and well-being of billions of people worldwide. But overfishing risks irreversible damage to the ocean. The amount of fish caught at sea has been relatively flat for the past three decades. But the share of the world's fish stocks that are being plundered unsustainably has continued to increase. Fish markets around the world are starting to adapt.
0: Haneda Market is a very vibrant fish market where all the fish traded is traceable. It is located right inside the busiest airport in Tokyo.
1: Naka Kondo is a senior editor at the Economist Intelligence Unit, our corporate sibling.
0: I recently visited the market, and the founder and CEO of Haneda Market took me around. (laughs) It's not a noisy market, where you would imagine, as in Tsukiji market, where people are shouting. Haneda Market only deals in sashimi fish, fish to be eaten raw. People living in Tokyo can eat fish that was caught on that day, At 4 a.m. in the remote islands, Kagoshima Islands of Amami, it tastes incredible.
1: But aside from selling delicious fish, the market is also responsible for interesting innovations.
0: Previously, fish caught in markets outside of Tokyo took three days to reach the consumers. But with Haneda Market, it only takes six hours from the port to the restaurants and supermarkets. Surprisingly, fish and fish markets usually have no indication of when the fish was caught or where it was caught or by whom it was caught. Usually it's up to the buyers to determine how fresh the fish is. There are a few reasons for this, of course, because fish, once it gets old, the price will go down. So many of the vendors were naturally inclined not to indicate specifically when exactly the fish was caught. But with this market, because they work directly with the fishermen in these fishing villages, they're very transparent about who caught the fish, when and where. This is important because A, it cuts out the middlemen and it supports the fishermen who did not have any access to the largest fish market in Japan, which is Tokyo. They're providing liquidity to the fishermen located far from this big market.
1: But how can Tokyo fish fans be sure they're getting sustainable, high-quality fish then?
0: They're also developing an app so that customers can track where the truck, bus, train is, carrying what types of fish from where, so that they know when these will be delivered to the restaurants.
2: There have been, all around the world, incredible successes sort of bubbling up. Jane Lubchenco again. They're not at the scale that's needed yet. But we can learn a lot of lessons from them and figure out how to escalate and accelerate and replicate these models of success. For example, in the United States, we were able to, after decades and decades and decades of overfishing, to turn fisheries around and not only end overfishing, but rebuild fisheries so that we have some of the healthiest stocks in the world. We have figured out a lot of the tricks to turning fisheries around, and it's getting the incentive. Right, So that fishermen can make a decent living, but also have a future. And figuring out the incentives and having good regulatory structure is key.
1: But tweaking incentives can only go so far to change behavior.
2: It's easy to see that people whose livelihoods depend directly on the ocean are connected to it, for sure. That's true of all the coastal countries, coastal nations. It's equally true, though, that people even who live kilometers and kilometers away from the ocean, are still affected by the ocean, and they still contribute to problems in the ocean. The world is much more interconnected than we often appreciate. And so to solve the problems in the ocean, We really need to think about what happens on land, what happens right in the coastal area, what happens in exclusive economic zones, and what happens on the high seas. We can't exclude any one of those. People in the center of countries are using products that end up like plastics in the ocean, especially all the single-use plastics, for example. Fortunately, because of how gross all those pictures, disgusting pictures of plastics in the ocean are. That's gotten people's attention. Plastics have really been the gateway drug to the ocean for a lot of people, if you will.
5: A lot of the costs we have currently for plastics are externalized. Plastic is too cheap. My name is Julia Lohmann. I'm a professor of contemporary design at Aalto University in Finland, and I'm also the founder of the Department of Seaweed. One of the uses that's being investigated at the moment is to extract materials from seaweed to make bioplastic, and that has huge potential. In Bretagne, they are researching whether they could make polytunnels out of seaweed. Polytunnels are these plastic sheets you put over early growing plants in spring when it's still too cold outside. That's a huge amount of plastic that you use and that you use for a very specific amount of time that might afterwards dissolve and go back into the soil as fertilizer, basically.
1: While seaweed will in no way solve the plastics crisis in the oceans, its production is surprisingly environmentally friendly. Seaweed enthusiasts like Julia believe algae is being underutilized by only being thought of as food.
5: In 2007, I was designing a residence in Japan, in Sapporo, up north on the island of Hokkaido. On the fish market, I found seaweed, and I was in awe at the materiality, at the possibilities that I saw immediately when looking at it, not with Asian eyes, not as food, but literally as a possibility for a material.
1: After realizing the potential of seaweed, Julia started designing with the material.
5: I work with different types of brown kelp by interrogating its potential. I'm making structures, large translucent structures that look like they're made from kind of skin, but I'm also making more applied things. I kind of started making structured and free-flowing clothes from seaweed. I started making jewelry pieces.
1: But like so many other resources, unless seaweed is grown correctly, it can cause ecological damage.
5: I think it has a huge potential in being a sustainable alternative to other materials we use. However, as with everything else, it's very much context dependent. If we now start harvesting all the natural stocks of seaweed, then we're causing more of a problem than we're solving anything. But if we are, for example, growing seaweed in the right conditions, in the right places, we actually have potential to improve the ecosystems in which we are engaging. So I worked together, for example, with the seaweed farm in Sweden, where they have grown seaweed for five years, and they noticed that a lot of the farm runoffs, so the excess fertilizer that otherwise causes these algal blooms, Are being pulled out by the seaweed, for example. It also offers a habitat to the fish that could improve the naturally occurring habitat for example over sandy sea bottoms but it depends very much where we are growing it and how we're growing it and I think this is the bigger idea that I'm advocating with my work with seaweed that we should really have this ecocentric framing when we are deciding on how to interfere in the ecosystems and we should really try to improve them rather than just try not to do any harm.
1: Climate change poses a threat to the world and her oceans like none before. The scientists we've spoken with all recognize the scale of the task ahead.
4: Damages from extreme events can be catastrophic for coastal island nations. The economic losses in the Caribbean from the past few hurricane seasons have been estimated at the hundreds of billions of dollars. Hurricane Maria devastated the country of Dominica with the agriculture sector being 100% destroyed and the tourism sector being 95% destroyed. So for a coastal nation, the impacts are direct but also long-lasting.
3: The estimations are 1.5% temperature increase. We'll see around 90% of the world's reefs Adversely affected. And that's a stark figure. When you take that up to two degrees rise, that percentage increases to 98% of the world's reefs being affected.
1: There are no easy solutions to reverse the damage that humans have done to the world ocean. It's impossible to hold back the tide of climate change without deep structural changes to the world economy. Scientists are at least buying time with innovative technologies. But will it be enough?
2: You know, It is so easy to get depressed when you think about the whole litany of problems in the ocean. You know, we had the IPCC special report on the ocean and the cryosphere that came out in September. And it says the ocean is warmer, it's higher, it's more acidic, it's more disrupted, it's more depleted, it's less predictable. It is stormier, it is wavier, currents are moving faster. All those changes affect people in very immediate ways, some direct, some indirect, but they are all really challenging. And it's not just climate change, it's all the plastic, nutrient, and chemical pollution, the overfishing, there's just a litany of one problem after another, after another. So it is, in fact, quite easy to get depressed and just see all these problems. However, I'm also very much aware of the amazing solutions that are bubbling up all over the world. They are not at the scale that's needed, but they provide models that we can emulate and accelerate. I've seen many instances where people's attitudes about a particular topic can change very, very rapidly. And there are tipping points in social attitudes. Time is running out. What we need to do is figure out how to get to those tipping points with respect to people's knowledge and attitude and actions having to do with the ocean sooner rather than later. I'm cautiously optimistic, but it's going to take a lot of work by a lot of people to pull it off.
1: Thank you for listening to this special episode of Babbage. You can read more on this topic and others in The Economist. I'm Kenneth Puquier, and in London, this is The Economist.
0: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yoquero Dinero, from a local business. To a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamericacom bankingforbusiness banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America NA, Copyright 2024.